0: It'll be helpful to have a look at it yourself. You'll see why in a minute. Um, So if you want to get a Bible that are out and about, um, it's on page, we're starting on page 61. Well, it's all on page 61. Um, If you're looking up in a different Bible, it's just Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 to 31. Um, I'm just going to start by reading that straight off. So strap yourselves in here. Um, Here we go. Exodus chapter 4, verse 18. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, Let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you were a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the signs he has commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites. And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Now, the only thing anybody in E can remember about that is the bit about cutting off the foreskin and touching Moses' feet. And you're thinking, what on earth is that about? Uh, this is one of those sections that you think. Why are we talking about uh, this passage? I've certainly thought that this week. Um, surely this is a section where, you know, we could spend more time on the burning bush last week and just skip this because nothing's really happening. The things that do happen, we don't have a clue what they're going on about. Um, you could skip this and, and spend time on the the better bits. Um, well, why, why we go through passages like this is because we believe what is said in... Uh, the letter to Timothy 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 that says all scripture including these verses is God breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work and so we believe the entire Bible is breathed out by God written by God it is it is words And we believe that the entire Bible, including this bit, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, righteousness. It's useful for equipping us for the works that God's prepared for us. So how we choose what to speak on at Grace Church, we don't sort of sit around in a room and think, oh, we'll speak on money one week and, I don't know, relationships the next or whatever. Not that those aren't good things to, to speak about, and we speak about them a lot. But we are committed to working our way through the Bible. That lets God set the agenda. Now, sometimes we'll do um, series around a theme. So we've often done that in the run-up to Advent, or we've done that relatively recently with um, Psalms of of comfort and trust. But most of the time at Grace Church, what we'll be doing is going through a book of the Bible, and where we finish off last week will be where we pick it up the next week. And as I said, that helps God to set the agenda about what we are talking about and thinking about as a community rather than just the ideas of me, if it was me this week, or what do I think about, uh, what should I speak about this week? If you do that long term, then it ends up just being the same things, the things that I find interesting, of, the things that I think are important. Also, it means things, perhaps like this, come up that we may shy away from or may not think to speak about otherwise. And so we committed to that way of going through the Bible um, because it, it allows God to shape what we do as a church. Now, I firmly believe that all the Bible is uh, God's words, useful, like we read before. That doesn't mean that all of it is equally easy to understand, and this is one of those sections that isn't um, as easy to understand. I, as soon as I then uh, planned out this series and how it was broken up and who was uh, speaking on what, uh, I saw I was down, all right, uh, chapter four. Uh, can't remember what that bit is off the top of my head. Read it and thought, right, great, it's that bit. I've heard of it before. Don't know what it's going on about. But all right. Fortunately, I'm not the first person to ever think this. There's been people writing commentaries for years, people who've studied this way more than I ever will. Pull those out. And the first one I opened said, these passages have perplexed interpreters for generations, um, which isn't a good sign. And there's a lot of things that are unclear that we'll, we'll, we'll come on to that in a minute. But I still believe that God can speak to us um, through it. Last week, we had God speaking to Moses at the burning bush and uh, saying that he's going to use Moses to go back to Egypt and bring the Israelites out of slavery. And what we had was Moses coming up with excuse after excuse. And in a way, that's what I've felt like this week a bit, thinking, oh, look, this is really hard to understand. Why am I doing it? All right, now I feel like you understand it. I still don't know what to say about it. Or eventually, just like Moses saying, look, is there anybody else who who can do this? Um, but I want to encourage us to stick with it. Um, sometimes it's, it's hard work to work through a passage. Sometimes you might have one of those things where you open the Bible and you read it and you just think, that's God speaking directly to me and it's it straight away, it's like a, a, a lightning bolt or whatever, you just think, oh, that, so God spe- speaks so clearly through it. Other times, it might be a bit harder work to really think through a passage, wrestle with it, uh, chew it over and understand it. That's not a bad thing for it to be hard work. I was talking with uh, Grant earlier on, just before we started about, um, I'm a teacher um, and I've been working with a lot of kids who've been going through their GCSEs recently. I was saying one thing that they often find difficult, and I'm always trying to change their mind on it, is that they go into things thinking, I'm going into a physics exam, I look at this question, either I can do it instantly or I've got no chance and they move on. I say, look, there's loads of space in between those two things. It might be that you have to look at a question and think about it for a while. It's, there's going to be hard questions, and that's not a bad thing. And Grant reminded me of the classic quote from Homer Simpson, which was, if something's hard, it's not worth doing. Um, and that is like the motto of 99% of the, the, the 16-year-olds that I come into contact with. Um, but we don't want to have that same attitude with the Bible. If we come across a hard passage... Right, that's it. No, I'm only here for the easy passages. If I I don't understand it straight away, um, I'm leaving it. Um, It can be beneficial for us to to work through it and think through it carefully. And so I've been praying all this week that God would speak through uh, this passage to us. I certainly haven't figured out all the the conundrums of this passage. Nobody has. Um, But that doesn't mean he can't still reveal himself to us this afternoon through it. So I'm going to just mention a few things that I think will um, be helpful to us for this. So we're in, um, as we've had that helpful recap earlier with that video, we're in the situation where God's people, the Israelites, are in slavery in Egypt. Um, Moses, through a crazy sequence of events, was an Israelite who grew up in the um, palace, um, the Egyptian pharaoh's palace, um, and then has ended up fleeing for his life. And then last week, um, we had God speaking to him, as I said, saying, look, I'm going to use you. You're going back to Egypt. You're going to say to Pharaoh, let my people go out of slavery. Now, God has asked Moses to do like a very, very difficult thing there. Um, Ben was talking about it last week and I think gave a helpful analogy of it's like saying to a Jew during the Second World War. Right. You're going to go to Hitler and convince him to free everybody from the concentration camps. Not only does it seem impossible that that would happen, that Pharaoh will release all these people from slavery, it feels likely that it's going to end up in death for Moses. He's given a very difficult thing to do. And he's 80 years old, I was reminded of today, which is just crazy. I mean, Paul McCartney was doing well last night at 80 years old, but this is like next level. Moses has been given this impossible task to do at 80 years old. And what we were looking at last week is, Moses is understandably like, worried about that. And so... He asks these questions, he gives various excuses, he sort of tries to get out of it. God answers all those questions in more or less the same way, not by talking about who Moses is and what Moses can do, but by talking about who God is and the fact that God will be with him. That's the the key thing. And so we move from that to this section, and the first thing we see is that Moses sets off for Egypt. He's, He's obeying God. And so I think obedience is the first thing that we see here. The difficulty of the task has not changed. It is extremely like daunting. It's an extremely daunting task that Moses has got. Presumably, Moses is still scared. He's run out of things to say to God about it, but it's still just as scary as it ever was. I think the fact that he's still scared is hinted at by the fact that he doesn't actually tell his father-in-law the, the, the real story about what's happened. He doesn't come back and say, like, I'll never believe there was this bush and God's told me, he sent me on this great mission. He says, oh, I'm going to go back to Egypt, just see if the people I know are still alive. Like, it, it seems like he's still a bit uh, hesitant, understandably. But no matter how scared he is about this task, he's, he's now decided he's going to obey he sets off, he loads his wife and, and sons on a donkey and he sets off. That demonstrates his faith in God. Moses is known as like a great man of faith. And I think one of the, the great things that we see about his faith here is, no matter how scared he is here, he just thinks, right, I'm going to set off, I'm going to do it. I think sometimes we think about faith as being like some sort of superhuman confidence that as you're like strutting around like a superhero, like nothing, nothing can go wrong, That's not what faith is like. Faith is more like closing your eyes and falling back into the arms of somebody who says they're going to catch you. Faith is taking a step. Moses takes his step here. Faith is taking that step even when it still feels scary or overwhelming. Well, faith is Moses being given that impossible job saddling up his donkey. It's the same thing for Abraham. Abraham's faith um, generations before was Abraham being told to leave uh, your family and leave the country where you're living and not being told anything about what's going to happen and where he's going to go. And he gets up the next morning and sets off. That's what faith is. Faith, we see a glimpse of it as well, with the less detailed, less dramatic example of Aaron, that God said to Aaron, uh, go and meet Moses in the wilderness. And maybe he thinks, what's that about? But he obeys, he sets off. Then he meets Moses, Moses tells him everything, and he finds out what it's about, and he still decides to go with him to Egypt. That's what we see, faith there. Faith is trusting Jesus that life is found in him rather than chasing all the other things that the world says uh, is where we'll find life. How do you know that somebody's got faith? How do you know that you yourself have got faith? Well, you we see it in our obedience. We obey what God says. That shows that we've got faith, that we trust him. Otherwise, the faith's just talk. Faith is taking that first step. You're saddling the donkey, setting off, even if you're trembling doing it. What's that, what's, what is that thing for you where there's just that like, step and it's, it's daunting, it's overwhelming, but faith um, would be demonstrated by taking that step of obedience? That's the first theme that I wanted to pull out of this, just obedience. We see Moses' obedience here. Then, as he set off, um, God sort of reiterates um, what, about, about what he sent him to do and what to expect in Egypt. And it includes a difficult concept because he says, you know, return to Egypt, perform all these signs in front of Pharaoh, but, he says at the end of verse 21, I will harden his heart, so he will not let the people go. Now, that's, I think, a confusing statement. It comes up a lot in Exodus, so we might as well deal with it here, which is like the first place it's come up. What what does God what does it mean that God's gonna harden Pharaoh's heart? Does that mean that like this is a foregone conclusion? That what's the point of Moses going to do these signs if God's saying he's gonna harden his heart? Like, is Pharaoh just Pharaoh just like a robot in this situation? If that's the case, then what's the point of everything that's gonna come? Compare it with uh, chapter three, verse nineteen, where God says, I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. And then now God's saying, I will harden his heart so that it will not let the people go. So one minute God's saying, well, I know that he won't let you go unless I do something. And now God's saying, well, I'm the one hardening his heart so that he won't let them go. Who is hardening the heart of Pharaoh here? Is it Pharaoh who's got the hard heart? Is it God that's hardened it? That doesn't get any easier. Um, Pharaoh's heart is mentioned absolutely loads. Um, Like I I was just looking through chapters 7 to 11, uh, preparing this. Um, And it's mentioned 14 times there, Pharaoh's heart. Approximately, it depends on how you count them, but five times it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Five times it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then sometimes it's just stating the fact that Pharaoh's heart was hard. Now, when we're coming across things like this, we want the the Bible to tell us what's going on, rather than my own opinions or, or my thoughts. So when we ask the question, well, is it God hardening Pharaoh's heart or is Pharaoh hardening his heart? We need to take the Bible's answer, which is both. That may be an unsatisfactory answer to us, because we want to know, just tell us which one it is. But the Bible says it's both. Like It's in the same book, often the same chapter, very close together. It's saying Pharaoh hardens his heart and God hardens his heart. It says both are true. So we might be wanting to ask, look, is God in control here or does Pharaoh have free will? The Bible says both are true. The Bible consistently, often in the same, very same story, he's, it's not like one part says one and another part says another. It's often held right together that God is sovereign and people are responsible for their own actions. It holds the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of people together and says they were both true. Whether we can get our heads around it or not. I can't quite get my head around that, but the Bible says they're both true. So, I mean, that's an interesting sort of, well, maybe interesting to you sort of um, idea. But what should we actually like take from this? Why is this of use to us in understanding what God's like? Well, two things I think we can take from this. One is that God can and he will do what he wants to do, regardless of whether we think about it. God will do what he likes. He'll do what he wants to do, regardless of whether I think it's a good thing to do or whether you think it's a good thing to do. We may not fully understand what God is doing here, but God doesn't answer to me. Like if I don't understand it, like God doesn't answer to me. He he does what He's going to do. In Romans nine, Paul's writing a letter to the church in Rome, and he he, he uses this exact example of Pharaoh's hard heart, and he uses it to sort of get to the point of, of describing the image of God being like the Potter and we like the clay. God's God's a potter shaping the clay. It's up to him. He does does what he wants with it. Now, under normal circumstances, saying this person does what they want regardless of what anybody else thinks is a bit of a scary, a bit of a worrying thing. If somebody was described to you, like if I described somebody I said, oh, you need to be careful about that person. They just do what they want regardless of what anybody thinks. That's a, a a bit worrying, a bit dangerous, a bit risky. That's not the case here. Because the person who's doing exactly what they want is the perfectly loving father. What he wants to do is always the best thing, whether I think it is or not. What he wants for my life, even if it's the exact opposite of what I think I need in my life, his way is better 100% of the time. We'll come back to that idea in a minute. But God's God and he can and do what he likes. The second thing is that we can take from this idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart is that God is incredibly gracious. And where where why I'm thinking and like that is, we've got to think, how does God actually harden Pharaoh's heart? It's not like he's clicking his fingers and all of a sudden Pharaoh's heart's hard. How does he actually do it? Well, we're going to read on um, in the following weeks about how he does it. But the way he does it is by giving Pharaoh chance after chance after chance to repent and change his mind. There's 10 plagues, that's 10 chances. Plus there's a couple of times that Moses speaks to Pharaoh before that. He gives Pharaoh opportunity after opportunity to change his mind, to repent, to humble himself before God and change the outcome. And and Pharaoh doesn't do it. So it's not like a cold-hearted God just clicking his fingers in there. Pharaoh's hard, he can't do anything else. God sends Moses to him to, to plead with him, to say, to say, look, let my people go. He gives them chance after chance. That's how, God's, that's how God's grace works. Now, Pharaoh doesn't respond to it. God's grace can sometimes have that hardening effect. Charles Spurgeon said, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay, and the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. God is consistently gracious towards people, and for some people that melts them and they receive that grace with with joy for other people, and Pharaoh is an unfortunate example of this it just become it just hardens him he becomes more uh, set on what he's going to do so let's move on from one tricky concept to one baffling um, incident, which is on the way back from egypt then um we're getting into verse twenty four here um it says, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. And then you've got the cutting off the foreskin with a flint situation. Now, this is one of the strangest stories in the Bible. It's one of the most difficult areas that I've come across to work out what's actually happening. Because you'll notice, um, if you're looking at the Bibles that we've got here, next to Moses is a little letter B. If you look down at the footnote, that says Hebrew hymn. And that's one of the issues in this passage In the original language, it just says him, he, his all the time. And it's not clear, is the him or he, is it God, is it Moses, is it Moses' son? Sometimes it seems to be one, sometimes it seems to be the other. So the people who've translated this English version that we're looking at have decided that they think that that him there is Moses. And then they've mentioned her son's foreskin and Moses' feet. But all the time in the original, it's just he, he, he. And it's difficult to understand exactly what the the, the things are, are that are taking place. Who is it that's going to be killed? Who, who is it that is, is doing different things? Every aspect of life is a bit tricky like that. So uh, Zipporah, that's Moses' wife, cuts off her son's foreskin, touches Moses' feet with it, and says, surely you were bridegroom of blood to me. Now, they helpfully say, at that time she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. I wish whoever would added that bit in brackets could tell us a bit more about like, what that actually means. But... The problem is people can't even agree on what she's trying to say there. Some people say she's like flinging the foreskin at his feet. What, what was our sentence that I just said? Some people think that she's flinging it at his feet and sort of Human with him, saying, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Like, blaming him. It's his responsibility. Other people say, no, this is like a tender statement of, like, solidarity. She's touching it on his feet and saying, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. I'm in this with you. Like, I'm committed to this mission. Like, nobody knows. So, we, we can't really, I mean, we can speculate on it. And plenty of people do. We can't know for certain. So, these are the things that I think we can know about this story. God's anger was aroused against Moses and it had something to do with his son not being circumcised, because that seems to be the thing that changes it. So, again, like, what, what can we actually take from this story? And it's similar to what I was saying before about God can and will do what he wants. God is holy, and we are not. It's not safe, it's not necessarily safe with a holy God. Well, it isn't safe for a holy God and unholy people, impure people. It's not safe for impure people like us, like Moses, to be around a pure, holy, perfect God. It's like an ice cube coming near you to a furnace, it's just going like, to melt. And we'll see this uh, throughout the book of Exodus uh, as the people sort of approach the mountain with God. It's not safe for them to go and touch that mountain because God's there and they're impure. Moses isn't some great, pure, holy, great man who's earned this position and God said, all right, finally, there's somebody who I can use. Moses is an imperfect sinner just like us. God's using him because God's gracious, not because Moses has anything inherently great about him. God's even been gracious to him here. If God wanted Moses dead, he would be dead. It seems more like this is a warning of how serious this matter is. And I think, again, this speaks to obedience. Obedience matters to God. Circumcision was something that uh, God had instituted um, with Abraham and his people were marked out by this act of circumcision. It's unclear why Moses' son hadn't been circumcised. But it seems like that was an act of disobedience. And then by Zipporah circumcising him, that that has shown that that they've been obedient to God. One thing that I think we shouldn't take from this story, because it's difficult to to understand, it's a bit less clear than maybe other parts of the Bible, what we don't want to do is to build our whole theology, build our whole understanding of what God is like on something like this. For example, you could read this and take away, all right, so what I'm understanding about God is that he could change his mind at any moment. right? He seemed to be well into Moses in the last chapter, now he's coming to kill Moses. So he could be like that with me. Like it sounded great, and he was on my side today, but what about that, I did this thing yesterday, and now is he going to turn up and try and kill me? Is he going to turn against me? You could, if you were just reading this story, take something like that from it. The way we need to deal with things like this that don't necessarily make sense is we've got to take them in the context of the entire Bible. That description of God that I've just said, that he could change his mind at any moment, It could be for Moses one minute and against Moses the next. That's not consistent with anything else that the Bible says about God's character. In fact, the rest of the Bible teaches that God is consistently faithful towards his people, even if they're not faithful. A large part of the story of the book of Exodus is that. God's people being unfaithful and God being consistently faithful to them. So when we see a strange bit like this, we don't then chuck out everything else. If there's something how I don't understand how it fits in, it doesn't mean it doesn't fit. It means it's my understanding that's limited. So I think we can see we can, we can something about the holiness of God and that, that obedience matters, but we don't want to build everything we understand about God uh, from this passage because it's less clear to understand. Got any other specific questions about that story? Because I'm not going to say anything else about it. Then make sure you ask Ben afterwards. Um, <laughs> the, I want to get on to the good, the, what I think is really good about this uh, passage now. And in the midst of a lot of stuff that's maybe difficult concepts or unclear stories, there's a brilliant bit where God says, where is it? Um, Verse 22. um, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. What what a phrase this is. God is describing the, the people, the Israelites, those people as his firstborn son. As we said, there's some heavy stuff going on here. What's going on with hardening the heart? There's some difficult to understand stuff. What's going on with the foreskin? Uh, I need to stop saying foreskin because it's setting uh, people off down here. Um, (laughs) There's heavy stuff. What's going on with hardness of heart? There's some weird stuff. What's going on with the flint? Um, But this is what it's all about. Like This is the central bit that helps us to unlock all of the other stuff, I think like God's will, the, the, the things that God's do, the fact that God will do what he wants to do, the fact that he desires obedience for us, his judgment, his mercy, his grace, all that, those things, they're not arbitrary. God's not just randomly doing things. Everything he does is the action of a loving father. He says, Israel is my firstborn son. He's picturing himself as their father. Everything he does, whether we understand it or not, is the action of a loving father. He loves his people deeply. That's why he's going to rescue them from slavery. He loves you deeply. Yes, he desires obedience. Why does he desire obedience? Because he loves you. He carries out his own will, not yours, because he loves you. He warns, he judges, because he loves you. We might cry out, well, God, why are you doing it like this? You might not get an answer other than he's doing it like that because he loves you. He's a perfectly loving father, caring for his children. He's never, he never has and he never will make a decision that isn't unloving towards you. There may be loads of stuff that we think, why has God done it like that? I wouldn't have done it like that. I don't understand what God's doing here. And as I said, we may never know the ins and outs of it. We may find out the ins and outs of it. One thing we can say for certain is he's doing it because he loves you. He's a perfectly loving father. And when God describes Israel as his firstborn son, we can't help but think about Jesus, God's firstborn son. Because where we fail in all these things, Jesus didn't. He was perfectly obedient in our place. He carried out his father's will. He took our judgment on himself. He fulfilled the purpose of this firstborn son, Israel, the purpose of obedience and worship of God that would be a blessing to the entire world. Jesus fulfilled that. And so now as Christians, as people who are trusting in Jesus to make us right before God, not trusting in our own performance, the Bible says that we, we described as being in Christ. Everything that is true of Jesus is now true of me and you. That means we are, we are, we are his beloved children. When God the Father looks at you, he says the same thing that he said of Jesus when Jesus was getting baptised. This is my son who I love. With him I am well pleased. That's what he's saying about you. He's a perfectly loving father. He loves you. But what, what, do we do, what do we do with that? Well, the Israelites often get it wrong in the book of Exodus, but here they get it spot on. They get it right. When Moses and Aaron turn up, They tell the elders of the Israelites everything. They show all the people the signs. And they they get it right. Verse 31, they believed. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them, when they heard that God hadn't forgotten them, he was concerned about them, he loved them, when they heard that, they bowed down and worshipped. That's the only appropriate response to to encountering this holy God who was also a perfectly loving father. They bow down, they're in a posture of humility. They recognize that he is God and they are not. They worship, they they praise him, they glorify him because the all-powerful God cares for them and is going to rescue them from slavery. That was also in verse 23 when God was saying about Israel as a firstborn son. The the message to Pharaoh is going to be, let my son go so that he may worship me. They're not just being set free for like a general freedom, They're being set free for a purpose, and that purpose is to worship God. That's the same for us. Why have we been forgiven? Why have we been redeemed? So that we can worship God. It's good for us, and it's glorifying to God. If you put yourself in the the place of these Israelites, they couldn't believe it. They'd had years of crying out, thinking God's promises had failed, thinking God had moved on or forgotten them. And he hasn't. These two people have turned up. This 80-year-old and 83-year-old turn up with this weird staff and they can do things and they're saying, saying these promises, and they, they believe it. They don't respond with um, cynicism. They don't respond with like an arrogant, like about time. They respond with humble awe. When I was thinking about their response, I had the words of a song that we'll sing in a minute. It's like we sing here, that says, "Who am I that the highest King would welcome me?" It's like that sort of response. It's like, You can't believe it. This all-powerful, all-holy God is concerned about them. He loves them. He's going to rescue them. Like, Who am I? I don't deserve this. The correct response to all this is to recognise that God is God, we are not. That's the bowing down, that's the humility. And that we're not just bowing down before an all-powerful but vicious or cruel God that The God that we bowing down before is a loving father, perfectly loving father. That's the best news possible. Now, what I'm going to do in a minute is just pray like I normally would here. I'm I'm going to kneel when I do that. Um, And if you want to join me in that, you'd be more than welcome to. We don't often do stuff like that. There's no pressure at all. You might not want to kneel. You might not be able to kneel. That's fine. But if you want to, then then, uh, join me. Just as a a symbolic way of saying we're humbling ourselves before God it's possible to do that without kneeling. So just feel free to to do yourself. I don't want do whatever you want. I don't want people to feel uh, pressurised. But I just want us to come before God with that attitude of humble worship that we're bowing down to worship like the Israelites here.